We're in a series uh, called The Good Book, and it is so good to see you all here this morning sharing in that. It's, it's wonderful for those of you who are tuning in online. We're grateful that you've tuned in to worship with us, and uh, we just pray that what we're studying together will be an encouragement to you. Uh, this week, we're going to take a look at Matthew 7 as you launch into the week ahead, as you discuss what will be in these 40 chapters, these 40 themes of great significance. So turn to Matthew 7. You can... Uh, Hold on to that, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. It's perhaps the most famous and recognizable passage in the New Testament, encompassing three chapters from start to finish in Matthew's gospel. It is the longest single teaching of Jesus recorded in Scripture, and it includes such priceless texts as the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, the Golden Rule, and other life-altering ethical words of wisdom. Now, we don't know from the Bible. The Bible doesn't say what hill or what mount served as the location for the preaching of this sermon. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't even call it what we call it today. It wasn't until the 5th century that Augustine chose to call it the Sermon on the Mount. And so for the last 1,600 years, we've been referring to it as the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott writes and describes it as the best known of Jesus' teaching, but also both the least understood and the least obeyed of Jesus' teaching. And personally, I don't know of any other single passage of Scripture that more profoundly challenges my thoughts, my ethics, or my behavior, quite like the Sermon on the Mount. Living it out is not a matter of just rolling up our sleeves and digging in. I really think it takes the presence of the Spirit of God in us to be able to do our best to live out the power of this passage. If you're going to study it this week, you're going to study all three chapters, 5, 6, and 7. Here's an outline of how the Sermon on the Mount breaks down. You can take a look at it on the screen uh, behind me. It, it covers a Christian's character, influence, righteousness, devotion, ambition, relationships, and commitment. Now, you cannot begin to plumb the depth of the Sermon on the Mount in a single sermon, but this week you'll delve into all three chapters in your devotional readings. And when you do, I want you to look for the wisdom of God. Find the things that, well, that challenge you. <clears throat> Find the things that affirm you. Note them, write them down, make a list of God's wisdom spelled out that will help you live this life. Throughout these three chapters, Jesus uses numerous pictures to help us understand the importance of a life shaped by godly values. And this morning, we're just going to take a look at part of chapter 7. Okay, we can't even get through all of chapter 7. We're just going to take a look at a couple of the pearls of wisdom in this wonderful chapter. And speaking of pearls, in verse 6, Jesus said, Do not cast your pearls before swine. That creates an interesting picture, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a rather absurd-looking picture when you stop to think about it. But in that day and time, a pearl was delicate, rare, and highly valuable. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great prize. The book of Revelation describes the gates of heaven as each one being made of a single pearl. So I'm not sure there would have been too many things more precious in that day and time than the pearl. In contrast, a pig by its very nature is filthy, violent, and 
totally incapable of appreciating anything as fine and lovely as a pearl. And remember in the Old Testament that the pig was considered unclean. There probably was not a more despicable animal to the Jewish people than a pig. They, they wouldn't let any pork pass their lips, but they wouldn't even get close to a pig. They wouldn't touch a pig. They had nothing to do with a pig. So the contrast is pretty strong. Jesus is saying in this, this is the lesson, don't give that which is valuable or priceless to those who could care less, who have no discernment for that which is truly important. A few minutes ago, we met around the Lord's table. That's what we call communion. We each take a bite of bread. We take a sip of juice to remember the Lord's body and the Lord's blood, which was given on the cross for us. It is the highlight moment in the service for me. It is the one thing that Jesus told us to do to remember him. So for a believer, for a Christian, the Lord's Supper is, is of great magnitude. It is truly important. But it's a believer's focus. It is not offered to the non-believer because the non-believer looks at the Lord's Supper and says, you know, this makes no sense and it's a pretty paltry snack to begin with. I mean, for goodness sakes, it has no meaning to them. So it would be like taking that which is priceless and valuable to us and giving it to those who have no discernment for its value. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Do not entrust the valuable things to those who have no discernment to understand. But maybe Jesus was also reminding us to be discerning about our own lives, to, to discern what is genuinely valuable, to live out that which truly matters in our faith walk, and to avoid in our life those things which cheapen our witness to the world. So I guess I would say, are we discerning? Do we see what is the pearl of great price, or are we as incapable of understanding as the pigs that feed at the trough. We're going to take a look this morning at the bookends of chapter 7. Two great pearls of wisdom. And, and the first one is this. Don't judge. Don't judge. In one of my favorite scenes from the sleepy little town of Mayberry, Andy is upset with his son, Opie, because Opie has donated a mere three cents out of his allowance to the underprivileged children's drive. And, well, Andy's passing judgment on Opie for not, not stepping up like he thinks he should. You see, Opie's saving up money to buy his little girlfriend a gift. It's a judgment call on Andy's part. But the conversation where Andy's trying to teach, well, <laughs> it just doesn't go quite like Andy expects it to go. Just watch. Sometimes when you try to pass judgment on somebody's motives or their, or their ideas, it just doesn't go the way you think. In these opening verses of chapter 7, Jesus addresses an issue about passing judgment on other folks. Now, you probably are very familiar with this passage. If, if you're not, I'd be surprised. Second only to John 3, 16. This is the most often quoted passage today in our culture. Our world has really latched on to this one. They like this one, even if they don't like the New Testament in total. And they use it quite frequently as a means of defense to shut people up. Here's the way it goes. In verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eyes? Now, you got to appreciate this. The Jewish humor back then had to do with exaggeration. So here Jesus describes a, a, a speck in somebody else's eye and a two-before hanging out of somebody else's eye. Now, we don't find that to be funny, but the folks that were listening to the Sermon on the Mount would have been rolling. They would have been hilarious. This was great humor. I want you to see that Jesus had a great sense of humor, that Jesus infused humor in the tough things that he was saying because it helped people to understand it better. I think Jesus must have had the best laugh ever. When you heard him laugh, I think it must have been infectious. So understand, this is the humorous part of the story here. How can you say to your brother, take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Luke sums it up this way in chapter 6, verse 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, I realize that most of us here are sensitive to our faults and our failures. I can tell you, I sure don't like somebody pointing out my faults and failures. That's human nature. But our ultra-sensitive culture is far too quick to point to this passage as a means of defense. So what did Jesus mean with this do not judge passage? What does this passage prohibit and what does it allow? This passage prohibits us from condemning another based on our judgments. It is not our job. It is not our role. It is not our place to condemn someone else. That's God's job and his alone. And I, for one, am grateful that God has not asked me or asked you to fill in that void. You see, only God has the capacity to do that justly and fairly. Only he knows the heart of an individual. I can see what you do, but I can't see into your heart. You can't see into my heart, but God can. So this is God's job. So what this verse condemns is the attitude of smug superiority that looks down on someone else and passes judgment in some area of personal taste or opinion. I mean, that's what Andy was doing to Opie, wasn't it? Andy had it in mind that Opie should give more than three cents. This was his judgment call. Now, I may not care for your fashion sense or your political persuasion or your hobbies in which you invest your time or the color of the car you drive or what you're really doing with your smartphone while I'm trying to preach. I may not care for those, but those are just my opinions. And my opinions aren't worth any more than your opinions. They're just that, opinions. So I drive this color car. You drive that color car. Big deal. It doesn't matter. Opinions don't matter. They may matter to me, but I have no right, I have no place to make that a point of contention in our relationship with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in the Restoration Movement churches, of which we have been a part all of our lives, we have held to this esteemed ideal through the years. In matters of faith, there must be a sense of unity among us. In matters of opinion, however, there is the spirit of liberty. And in all things, of course, there must be the spirit of love. So let me suggest to you three reasons why you and I are not capable of judging another based on our opinions. Number one, we seldom, if ever, know all the facts, 
nor do we completely understand the person and his or her motives. Number two, we are seldom, if ever, completely impartial in our judgments. Only God is impartial. Folks, I'm biased. I know I'm biased about things. It's the way I'm wired, the way I grew up, the place in the country where I grew up. You grew up in some other place other than the Midwest. You'll have biases that are different than folks who grew up in the Midwest. Every one of us comes at everything with a certain amount of bias. And number three, we are never good enough to judge any other individual. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Judgment is not for us. The rabbis of Jesus' day often taught that there were six great works which brought a man credit in this world. Study, visiting the sick, hospitality, devotion and prayer, the education of children in the law, and number six, thinking the best of other people. We are to give one another the benefit of the doubt. Even when it doesn't look quite right, we're to give one another the benefit of the doubt. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said just a few verses down farther in the seventh chapter, verse 12? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. We call it the golden rule. And how golden is it if we would all practice that? How much better our world would be? So, don't look down your nose at anybody. Don't be smug. Don't act superior. Your opinions are your opinions. But they may not be mine. And we can still get along together despite that. So far, no disagreement. It's the other side of this principle that gets people riled up. Now, now here's, here's what I want you to understand that goes alongside of this. And that is, as Christians, we are supposed to evaluate and analyze one another in the body of Christ to help us along this journey in life. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. In other words, by their actions, by their behavior, we can, we can understand what somebody else is doing or believing or where they're headed. In other words, by actions and behavior, we gain insight into their character. But here's what we dare not miss. When it comes to moral issues, the rights of, or the matters of right and wrong, where God has clearly stated this is right and this is wrong, it is not judging to address that issue in the life of another believer. I would not let my children play with a poisonous viper. I would not give my children a bottle of, of arsenic to play around with. How silly would that be? How cruel would that be? I want to protect my children and my grandchildren from those things that would harm them. Our Heavenly Father wants us as family to help protect one another from those things that would harm them. Now, here's the deal. If you catch me doing something that the Bible says is wrong and you don't come to me and warn me about it, do you really love me? If I don't do that for you, do I really love you? This text does not encourage us to play dumb in our relationship with other people or to turn a blind eye to their sins as if we didn't notice them, or to refuse to discern between truth and error, goodness and evil. This is where our culture gets it wrong. Our culture says you can't say anything to anybody about anything because that's judging. No. 
I don't judge you based on my opinions. But I do have to help you. I do have to come alongside of you and help you if you're struggling with something that God has said is wrong because that might jeopardize your relationship with the Lord. Now, if I come along and say, hey, I'd never be caught doing this. You ought to get your act together. That's the wrong approach. You do it lovingly, tenderly, kindly, helpfully. You come alongside to help that other person, but you don't back away from the truth. Now, hear me say this clearly. All right, everybody, everybody with me? This is Christian to Christian. Do not go out and take your seventh chapter of Matthew and start beating non-believers over the head with what you think is right and wrong. That's, that's, they're not going to want to hear from you. They may be participating in behavior that the scriptures tells us is wrong, but they're not a believer yet. You can't enforce Christian behavior on people who have not embraced Jesus Christ. Introduce them to Jesus first. Model Jesus first. Come alongside of them with Jesus Christ first. And then once they find him, we can begin to deal with the things that trouble one another's lives. Didn't we already talk about this in the casting our pearls before swine business? I mean, how can you avoid casting your pearls to the pigs without knowing the truth or standing for the truth or without a discerning, analytical, thoughtful spirit? We're, we're going to take that which is valuable and hold one another in the body of Christ accountable. So when you care enough to risk rejection and ridicule to the point to point out another Christian's sinful behavior, that's not judging. But when you look down on someone else without having all the facts or without understanding their motives and you conclude that their views or opinions aren't as good as your own, then we are guilty of breaking what Jesus said is the wrong way to handle it. We are guilty of judgment. And that's a, that's a bad place to be. So how did it end up with Andy and Opie? Watch. Be careful when you judge you'll eat a lot of crow. <laughs> so that's how the passage begins. How it ends is with another admonition. Be wise. Don't judge, but be wise. Matthew 7, verse 24, Jesus unfolds one of his beautiful parables again. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as one of their teachers of the law. Hang on to that he taught as one who had authority. Well, at the conclusion of this sermon, this parable teaches us one single truth. And Jesus, being a carpenter, would have known well what he was talking about. He was used to building things. So this was a natural kind of a story for a carpenter to tell. But notice where the contrast of wisdom and foolishness comes in the story. There is nothing to suggest that one was a more capable builder than the other. Nor can we conclude that one used inferior quality materials while the other used the best available. 
Jesus does not suggest that one is a better businessman, nor does he infer that the one is industrious while the other one is lazy. It has nothing to do with their ability to hear, as though one was a good listener and the other one was nearly deaf. No, the difference between wisdom and foolishness is determined by one thing, the foundation upon which you build your life. Jesus says, this foundation of doing what I tell you, obeying my words, that will be a, that will be a, a life built strong enough to withstand the storms. The person who does not build on my words will never survive the tough times. There it is, single choice. You either obey Jesus' words or you don't. That's it. We, we live in an option-crazy society. Early in the 1960s, there were four major brands of toothpaste. I know this because I used to stock the shelves in the little store where I worked. There was Colgate, Crest, Gleam, and Pepsodent. That was, that was it. There were a few other off-brands that were added in. Those are the four major brands. Today, if you go to the store to buy toothpaste, Crest alone has 27 varieties. Campbell Soup, 53 different soups. I grew up in a dairy family. My grandpa started a dairy in my hometown of Huntingburg, and, and man, I thought the ice cream was the best. They, they had vanilla, they had chocolate, they had strawberry, and a few of the other smatterings. But if you go to the store today to buy Breyer's Vanilla Ice Cream, you have to choose between natural vanilla, French vanilla, half the fat vanilla, no sugar added vanilla, extra creamy vanilla, homemade vanilla, lactose free vanilla, and carb smart vanilla. And that's just the vanilla Briar's ice cream. You know what's happened is that we have just become overwhelmed with the choices. And the problem with having too many choices is that we start to apply that to the spiritual aspect of our lives. Oh, I should have choices. It shouldn't be just one choice. So let me pick a little bit from this religion, a little bit from this faith, a little bit from this faith, a little bit from this philosophy. I'll put it all together and I'll have my choice and I'll be comfortable with what I end up with. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, I want you to be comfortable. He said, I want you to build on my words. If all you pick is that which you're comfortable with, you're building on the sand, and you will not survive the storms of life. And you say, well, why is this all so important? You know, it seems so narrow for Jesus to do this. Well, we'll come to that in just a moment, this, this narrow focus. But here's why I want you to see why the obedience aspect is important. It's important because what we do creates habits. In a, in a Duke University study, it was revealed that 40%, nearly half of what we do every day of our lives, grows out of habit. In other words, half of what you do tomorrow will come out of habit. You won't think about it. You won't decide about it. You'll just do it because it's habit. 50% of our daily activity grows out of habit. Which tells me, folks, then, if you are growing in Christ, if you're being obedient to his word, you're creating habits that will be a positive impact on your life. If you're not following Jesus' words, you're creating habits that may be detrimental to your life because Jesus said, my words are life. And so we come to this whole concept of Jesus saying, obey me, that's wisdom. Disobey me, that's 
foolishness. And that's where people get concerned about the narrowness of it. Jesus being too narrow. Jesus being too exclusive. And, and even if you look farther down in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, people will point to this and say, he says it as much. Enter through the narrow gate. There it is, narrow. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow. There it is again, the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Again in verse 21 of chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, those who obey the words that Jesus spoke. Here's the thing. It's not narrow because God has made it narrow. It's narrow because so few people choose it. It's not exclusive. The invitation is open to everybody, but most people want to choose what's comfortable not what is rock solid to get them through. And just because somebody claims to be the way doesn't mean that they are. There has to be something that validates, that gives credibility and integrity to the claim. Remember it says he spoke with one as authority. Well, where did that authority come from? What is it that sets Jesus apart from everybody else, anything else, any other religious leader or philosophy? Well, I'm here to tell you, if a man can remain in the grave to the point his body begins to decay and then comes back to life, a man who can conquer death, who can die the cruel death on a cross and be raised on the third day, a, a man that can do that, which nobody else has ever done, that sets him apart from all the rest. He's the only risen Savior claimed in the world. And if it's true, then everything he said about himself is true. And everything he says to us is true. And you say, yeah, but I don't think I believe in the resurrection. Okay, I understand your doubts. Can I suggest to you study it out? Start looking at the evidence. Start looking at the proof. I mean, everything we do, we take on faith at some point in our lives. I'll be glad to help you. I'll be glad to encourage you in your study. Just don't take your disbelief or your doubt at face value. Study it out because I think you'll come to the conclusion that he did come back from the grave, that the only explanation for an empty tomb is the resurrection of Christ, and that settles it once and for all. His words then are rock solid. They are the ones that are worthy to build your life on because not every, every source is credible, even GPS. In January 2013, Sabine, Sabine Moreau, uh, a 67-year-old Belgian woman, was driving to pick up a friend in Brussels, which is about 90 miles away from her home. She plugged in the date, uh, entered the date, uh, the, the address, I'm sorry, entered the address into her GPS and started driving, drove all the way to Croatia, which was 1,000 miles out of her way. The journey took the woman across five international borders. She stopped several times to get gas and take naps, but she kept on going until she hit Zagreb because that's how the GPS was leading her, the capital of Croatia. Her son got worried. He, he contacted the police. They were able to track her following her bank statements, her ATM withdrawals all along the way. She told a Belgian reporter when they finally caught up with her, I was distracted. I just kept going. I saw all kinds of signs, first in French, then in German, finally in Croatian, but I continued driving because I was detract, distracted by my GPS. When I passed Zagreb, I told myself I should probably turn around. 
Well, yes, but that should come a long time before that. Some things, even though we think at first they're credible, may not always be right. How many people do you know that are traveling down this road? They're way past where they ought to be on the journey. They seem to be following some kind of misguided direction in their life. And they just get farther and farther and farther away from the truth as they travel. Isn't it about time to turn around? You see, it's never too late to turn around. It's never too late to start rebuilding on a solid foundation. It's never too late to take the path less traveled. It's never too late to make the wise choice to build your life on the rock of ages, Jesus Christ himself.